We are, I think we have two studies left on God's promises. And as I keep saying, we certainly have not come close to exhausting these promises. <laughs> We're actually just uh, kind of scratching the surface on a lot of these because there's a lot of promises throughout the New Testament. I think just in the sheets that I went through doing something similar to what our brother Jim did, just going through and reading through the New Testament a few times and marking these down, I had well over 200 and some promises made to us as New Testament Christians. Uh, and I'm sure I missed plenty <laughs> uh, when I was reading through the New Testament and compiling some of these. But today we're going to look at some, we're continuing to look at promises for our future, and we're looking at promises for us that are kind of connection with the rapture, but past the rapture. And so we're going to start in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 today. <clears throat> and I didn't pass out an outline for today. I didn't print this off. Printed this off at home and I didn't make a copies for you today. So I apologize if you're accustomed to those. But in Romans chapter 8, we have this this statement, and it kind of builds through this whole this whole context. And uh, I want to go back up to, I said Romans 8.23, I think, but I want to actually go back up to um, verse 14. And we're going to read down through here, and I'm reading from the New American Standard. It says, for all who are being led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Now that's talking about conduct and practice. In your conduct and practice... When you are following the Spirit's lead, when you are following the Spirit's lead, you are actually functioning or acting like a son of God in that context. We've been over this before. But then he goes on from there and he says, For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading again to fear. In other words, when you reach the status or function as a son, you're not operating in fear. If you're operating in fear, then that's a demonstration that you're not following the Spirit's lead at that given time and you're not functioning as a son. Because that's not the motivation of a son, is to operate by fear. He says, so we're not a, a spirit of slavery that leads back again to fear, but you have received a spirit of son placement or adoption, as sons the New American Standard has, but placement as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. A slave never referred to God as his Abba, Father. But that's something that we have the privilege of doing in this status. Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Now he brings the issue of children in here because children and, son, and sonship are related. They're not the same thing. Children is something that comes to us by birth. We're born into God's family and that's how we become a child. When we are functioning, following the leading of the spirit, God allows us to function or makes it possible for us to function as one that is not just a child in the family, but one that actually has the privilege of actually representing the family. Actually one that could, shall we say, conduct business on behalf of the family in the Roman world uh, where they were living, or in which they were living, that Roman world in which they were living at that time. And so this, this child over here the very moment that you become a child by the birth, new birth, at that same moment, you immediately in Christ are counted to be a son. But you can function as a son when you're following the lead of spirit. This is what uh, Paul's getting at in here. And then he says in verse 17, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God on one hand and joint heirs with Christ on the other, since indeed we suffer with him in order that we also are glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. 
Now, because we haven't been reading all through Romans here at this moment, let's just remind ourselves what he means by suffering. Because usually when we come to suffering in this statement, we think aches and pains. You know, I ache. This hurts and that hurts. And maybe we got the flu right now. We're moving into flu season. And there are people maybe that deal with the COVID-19. And some people feel crummy and things like that. Uh, and there are aches and pains. And there's groaning like that. We get that. That kind of groaning. But the groaning that Paul's been mostly concerned about goes back especially into chapter 7, but in the preceding chapters, he's been dealing with the problem of the, the sin nature. And the sin nature is the thing that Christians, especially in this context, we groan with that, I think, even more than we groan with our physical ailments. Because we have a sin nature, and we don't like that sin nature. We don't like the fact that out of my sin nature, that I have things that, that I get caught up in, that I get things that I, I don't want to think like that. I don't want to act like that. But those things are popping into our head and we find ourselves acting like that. We find ourselves thinking ways that are not appropriate and responding in ways that aren't appropriate and so on and so forth. And so in that context, he says, we are groaning in this. I'm not, he said, verse 18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time aren't worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the anxious longing of creation, now this isn't just us, but creation in general, is waiting for the revealing or the unveiling of the sons of God. That's us. Now we talked about that in the last hour in a statement where Jesus is talking about, and in the regeneration. The regeneration is not talking about our spiritual regeneration. It's talking about when he makes the world what it's supposed to be for that kingdom. And that happens at the time that we come back with Christ and we are unveiled to the world as his sons. They're going to get to see believers not just counted to be sons, but functioning and acting like sons all the time. Sometimes I act like a son. Sometimes I act like a brat. Those two are not synonymous. <laughs> Sometimes in our world they are, but not biblically they're not. Not in what Paul's getting at. So he says, this, this creation is, verse 19, eagerly waiting that. The creation is waiting to be released from this. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will. In other words, creation didn't say, hey, we're willing to be messed up. We look at creation out there and all the problems and things we have to deal with in this fallen world. And that didn't come down because the creation wanted it that way. It happened because of God's purpose and because man sinned, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be freed from its slavery to corruption. Always keep that in mind. When you look at the world and what goes on out there, this creation is actually in a state of corruption. It's falling apart. It's not functioning the way God actually designed it to function in this, in this way. And he says it'll be that way because of the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers in the pains of childbirth right up until now. And not only this creation, but also we ourselves, the ones that have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan within ourselves, eagerly expecting the placement as sons, the redemption of our body. In other words, I actually am going to fully be placed as a son when I see Christ, when he comes back for us and we're caught up into his presence. 
my body's going to be fully changed, and one of these things that's a limitation for me now will be ended. And that'll be true of you as a believer in Christ. And from that moment on, you and I will always function as God's sons. We will always represent the family well. Understand that? So that's one of the things as we move from the rapture forward into eternity is that we are, I guess we usually do it this way, don't we? We go from left to right. <laughs> that as we move out into eternity, we will be always acting like sons of God. That's a good thing. We're not going to get out there in eternity and mess up again. That's an important uh, important. Uh, point, important thing for us to appreciate and understand. Now, as we move out into eternity, one of the places where we're going to reside is going to be called the heavenly city, the New Jerusalem. And the Bible tells us some things. We're not here to really sit on that issue of the New Jerusalem for the most part, and in terms of what it looks like and such like that, because I think that there's some more important things about the New Jerusalem for us. And the first thing I want you to go and look at is in John chapter 14. John 14, and we looked at this verse a few weeks ago. John chapter 14, verse 1, says, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many dwelling places. And if it were not so, I would have told you, for I go and prepare or get a place ready for you. And if I go and get a place ready for you, I will come again and I will receive you to myself so that where I am, you may be also. Is that something to look forward to? That's something to be looking forward to. I've got the hope that I'm going to be a son of God in all of my practice. And I have the hope that he's going to come back and get me and take me to be where he is at a place that he's getting ready. To me, it's interesting. There he says, my father's, my father's house, the universe and all of this, it's got a lot of dwelling places. But you're not going to stay in one of those. I'm going to go get a place ready for you. Different than one of those that exists in my father's house. <clears throat> and by the way, that doesn't mean he's getting a house, one house ready for me and a different house for you. We're all going to share in the same dwelling place, which we're going to be looking at here in just a moment. So turn with me to Revelation chapter 3. And there's actually quite a bit of surprisingly, there's actually quite a bit of teaching in the New Testament on, on uh, the New Jerusalem. Paul mentions it over in Galatians chapter 4. He says, that's our mother. So when he, way he refers to it metaphorically in our relationship, he talks about it. And I've got the verses on here over in Hebrews chapter 12, that, that the New Jerusalem is a place where we will be in the future. But if we look over here in Revelation chapter 3, Revelation chapter 3, says in verse 12, Revelation 3.12, he who overcomes. Now, who's an overcomer? What does it mean to be an overcomer or a victor? Okay. So 1 John 5, it says, the one who believes that Jesus is the Christ, they're the overcomer. What overcomes is your faith. We live in a world that says, don't believe in that. Who, do any of us believe that? Look at that. Let's take a consensus. How many of you believe in this Jesus? Look at that. You are a minority. Get in line. And we go, no, this is who Jesus Christ is. This is what he did. And you stand out. We stand out in that way. 
And that is what actually, he says, that's what made us overcomers, was that faith that we had in Jesus Christ. You can see that over in 1 John chapter 5, verse 4. Thank you. So now then, we come over here to Revelation chapter 3, he who overcomes, that is, the one who is a believer. I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Now, Josh showed us back, I don't know, it's been a few years back now, but showed us all these pictures on his phone of, uh, we should have had him put them up on the screen up here, of all these temples that they got to see when they were over there uh, in, in the Mediterranean, around Greece, and they you know, have all these temple ruins. Some of them are in good shape. Some of them, they, you know, they've definitely seen better days. But you saw that most all of those temples around the outside had pillars because they had a roof that extended out around the main temple part of the building, what they called the naos. And so they had out around that the roof extended, and you had all these pillars that would go around the outside that kind of created a porch. Some of them had pillars that were too deep. They may have been more it's a long time ago since I took art history of ancient Greece where we looked at a lot of architecture. I can't barely remember this stuff. But some of them, if they were poor, they could only put the pillars across the front. But all of that to say is that it was common for these temples to have pillars around the outside. And so as you approached that temple, the first thing you were met with was a view of those pillars. What does he say about these people? I'm going to make them pillars in the temple of my God. In other words, in that situation, as people would approach God here in this future situation, the first thing that they're going to be met with are all these believers that are around the Lord Jesus Christ and around God the Father as pillars in the temple. Just think of it. All of us, we're not literally standing there like this, stock still as tempers, temple pillars holding the roof up. It's a metaphor. I think we all understand that. But it's in the way that you're just going to have all these millions of believers that are surrounding God the Father and God the Son around the temple as these other people are approaching that temple coming and going. Because there are other people that, aren't, that are believers, but they're not part of this, this situation. They're Old Testament believers and believers from the tribulation period and then people that will become believers out there during that time of the kingdom, that first part of the kingdom. And so they're going to come and we're going to be pillars. First thing, we're going to be pillars. Second of all, he goes on, pillars in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it anymore. Now, I think if you know your Bibles, that's significant because if you remember, you go back to the book of Ezekiel, what did God do? He... He left the temple, exactly. And it took a long time for Israel to realize that he had left the temple. In fact, I don't know that they ever really wanted to fully recognize that he never, that he actually left, but he did leave the temple. But once we're in this situation, he's never going to go out from us. That, that, by the way, that's a security statement, isn't it? Because it's a statement that tells you, because there are some people that, that I've listened to people, well, how do you know that we're going to be faithful out in the future? How do you know that maybe we're going to be just like Adam and Eve and it will mess it all up all over again? Well, this is one of those verses that's going to say, once I'm glorified, <clears throat> in fact, I would say even from the very moment that I believe the gospel, my life is always, been, is always in God's hands in, in that, that way. And I'm not going to mess up. Okay? And so... As we move out there into eternity and you approach this, you're going to have these believers and God is going to be in our midst and he's never going to leave us, ever. And it's not just, because people say today, well, Jesus is in our midst today. 
And there is a sense that the Bible says, you know, that when people are together, that there is, that we form like a kind of temple of God. Paul says that in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. But you know what? And well, and your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. We also have that true. But this is going to be very literal because God literally, people are, we're going to be able to look and see. He's right there. I can see him. He's right there. They're sitting right there. And here we all are around them. Technically, as he tells us down in the, towards the end of Revelation chapter 3, sitting with him on his throne, which we looked at, uh, I think, two weeks ago. So notice what he goes on to say uh, here, Revelation 3, verse 12, after he says that he will not go out from it, and I will write upon him, that is on the overcomer, the believer, I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from God, from my God, and my new name. But notice, you also get the name of that city. Why do you get the name of that city written on you? You have the name of God on you, and you have the Son's name on you because you belong to them. Any of you ever seen the Disney movie Toy Story? Because one of the big parts of the Toy Story movie is when Andy, the boy, takes, I don't know which side to do this on, takes Buzz and writes Andy on the boot on his his space boot because I can't what's the cowboy's name in there the other big Woody on Woody he did the same thing he wrote his name on the bottom of there that was a big name because that says I see I belong with somebody I got their name on me well God's going to put his name and the name of the son on us we belong to them first of all but we also have the name of the city is it that we belong to the city I wouldn't say we belong to the city so much as we belong there <laughs> Because it's our, it's our home. It's our residence. I I looked for this Bible, this particular Bible, for a long time because I used to see this in a bookstore when I was in seminary. But I didn't have the money, and in seminary I was so too poor to be able to spend the money on this particular Bible. But I wanted it, and I looked and looked, and I finally found this out in Michigan in a bookstore. So when I once I found it, I always put my name on my Bibles, but I put my name. I also put my address so that if I stupidly leave it in the pocket of an airplane, which I did with a good, with a very good book, took me years to replace. When we came out here to candidate in 91, I left, I left Chafer's best volume of his systematic theology in the pocket in front of me because I was helping with, with, um, with our daughter who was a baby. And I left it. It took me forever. I put that address there so if somebody comes along and finds it, Royal City, Washington. They probably could look me up. If I put Seattle, good luck. But Royal City, not so hard to find me, I don't think. They could probably call, they could probably find Harvest Foods. and kind of, Do you know a guy by the name of Tim Holsch? <laughs> they could call City Hall and City Hall go, oh yeah, we know who he is. Anyway, all that to say, we get the name of the city written on us because it helps us know this is our home. So we have the name of the Father, we have the name of the Son written on us, we belong to them, but we also have the name of the city written on us, because the city is, in that context, our home. Now with that then, I want you to turn over to chapter 19 here in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19, and look with me beginning at verse 7. 
Revelation 19, 7, let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. That's very important. That word made herself ready, very clear in the Greek. It's an active verb and it actually has the reflexive pronoun herself. So that is important because we're going to look at another passage that's going to be different than this. And it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen. No, it's given to her to clothe herself. Somebody else doesn't dress her. She still dresses herself, but it's given to her to put this on. Bright and clean, fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And he said to me, right, happy are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. So he's, here's, here's the bride. And without going through this, we looked at this a couple weeks ago. We are the bride of Christ. We're the ones that come back with him in this. But this is when he's actually going to come out and he's going to display us. When he comes back, he's going to display us not just as sons, as we saw in Romans 8, but also show us to be his bride. Okay, so we've been seen as sons, Romans 8, but here we're actually going to be displayed as a bride. Now turn with me to chapter 21 here in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 21. In Revelation 21, in verse 1, it says, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no more sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready like a bride. Now that word made ready is, is used here, and that is written in a passive voice, whereas in chapter 19, we, the bride, make ourselves, or she makes herself ready, active voice, this is passive. This city has been readied by somebody else. So this is distinct in the way he refers to it. And it says, she's made ready like a bride. Doesn't say she is the bride. It says she's made like, made, excuse me, made ready like a bride having been adorned or ordered, put in order for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of the throne saying, Look, the temple of God is now with men, and he will tent out with them, and they will be his people, and he himself will be their God. And he will. Verse 4. Notice the qualities that exist in this situation. This is a situation in which he's created all these things new, in which he will wipe away every tear from their eye, and there will no longer be any death, nor sorrow, nor crying, nor pain, for the former things have passed away. In other words, all those things are created, are part of this present fallen created situation. But out there, when he creates all things new, all those things are done. They're gone. They're no longer associated with that new creation. That new creation that consists of new heavens, new earth, and this new holy city, Jerusalem, that descends out from God. All of these are things that are associated with that situation out there. And all of these things are gone. So think what that's going to be like. It, I, I, I'm going to bet probably most of you probably struggle to think of what it's going to be like to actually live in a place where none of that stuff goes on. Because we're surrounded by it. And think of over the last nine months here in our country, we've got the media that's constantly going, everything's falling apart. It's the worst case ever. Run and hide. Scream. Act like, ah! 
I mean, seriously. I mean, don't they do that? They just It's like they, they thrive on getting you all worried. This is what we do. And then we do it ourselves. We come in a situation. We all sit and go, aren't you worried about this, Susan? Dwight, oh, this is bad. Aren't you thinking about, oh. And we do all this stuff. And I'm thinking the other night, I was thinking about my daughter and getting ready to have a baby. And I'm laying in bed in the middle of the night. I couldn't sleep. And I'm not literally wringing my hands because I'm trying to lay still, not wake my wife up. But I'm mentally wringing my hands. And then, and then it's just like, God, you planned this a long time ago. You know exactly what's going to happen. You know exactly how it's going to play out. You know what you're going to do here. And I can rest in that because I know the kind of God that you are. Rest in this. And then I got to lay there in bed and start at the top of the list. I forgot, I didn't start with the V's. I started at the top of the list and pray down through the list of people in our church. And then God brings other people to mind. And I did that. But I, I might not have enjoyed laying there praying for you people if I would have laid there and mentally been wringing my hands over these things. All that stuff's going to be gone out there in eternity. So I can't imagine, what are we going to spend our time doing if we don't worry about stuff? <laughs> I can think of a lot of good things to do out there in eternity when we don't have to be worrying about crazy stuff. And we shouldn't be worrying about it now anyway, but it, it tends to kind of take a lot of our time. But then he goes on, and I want you to keep reading in here just so that we can be clear. Um, verse 5, And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. And he says, Write these words. They're faithful and true. In other words, you can take them to the bank. They're certain. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega. I'm the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of water of life without cost. He who overcomes. This is, We already see who saw an overcomer. He inherits these things. And I'll be his God and he will be my son. See, he brings that whole sonship thing in here again. Just like Paul was talking about in Romans. But then he says, but the cowardly and the unbelieving, the abominable, and the murderers, and the immoral persons, and the um, sorcerers, and the idolaters, and liars, and uh, their part is in the lake of fire that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. In other words, they don't get to participate in any of those things, because they're in the lake of fire. And then he says, And one of the seven angels, who has one of the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, came and spoke with me, saying, Come, I'm going to show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city. Now, he already showed him the holy city. He saw the holy city coming down. Why is he doing it this time? Because there's a feature of the city that he wants to point out. And so he says, he showed me the holy city coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. So you imagine what this is going to be like, lit with the brilliance of who God is. How did Paul describe meeting just the Lord Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus? Brighter than the noonday sun. And not noonday sun in November. <laughs> noonday sun in the dead of summer when that sun is overhead like this. So brilliance was like a very costly stone, like a stone of clear, uh, clear jasper. It had a great and high wall with 12 gates. And at the gates, 12 angels and the names were written on them, which are those of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. Uh, I want to get on down. He keeps talking about these things. He takes a measurement of it in verse 15, and he tells us in verse 16 that the measurement of that city is laid out like a square. Its length is as great as the width, and its measure and measure the city with a rod, 1,500 miles. Its length and width and height and are equal. Now, there are 
three things that match those dimensions, a sphere, a cube, and a pyramid. He doesn't tell us which one of these it is. I always default to the pyramid. I don't know if that's what it's going to look like. But this is one of the things I did, which you may not care one, one iota about this, but I just want you to kind of put this in perspective. You can figure up roughly the area on that. Well, not roughly. You actually can figure it up with great precision if you just do some geometry. And the result of that is, is that that city, its surface area is going to be somewhere between 7 million square miles of surface area and 10 million square miles of surface area. That's a lot of surface area. Well, let's put it this way. To give you a perspective, I, I, I don't know if I could give you a comparison in terms of the square miles, but I can give you a comparison in terms of the distance. <clears throat> if you put one corner of that city on our west coast, not Seattle, go to, to uh, Ocean Shores or someplace over there, go out to the Olympic Peninsula, that would almost reach back to Iowa. I think it would reach back to back where Dwight was from, back into that area. In, in the Dakotas, a little bit further beyond that, because I think it's I think it's eighteen or nineteen hundred miles from here to my parents. You slid it back this way, it would just be about be middle of South Dakota. So think about it. that's that's just one dimension of the city, but it also has that dimension that extends south, like way down to California from here, way down into California, and then it's also that high. K two and Everest are around twenty eight thousand square. 28,000 square feet, 2,800 feet high above sea level. That's not very high. How many miles is 2,800? 28,000 feet, thank you. 28,000 feet. Yeah, somewhere between five to six miles tall. Yeah, precisely. Yeah, that's not that, I mean, that's not that tall compared to 1,500 miles high. So just trying to give you a perspective on the height of that. So think of now the, all that surface area. Now what's on the outside of that surface area? We just looked at this a little while ago over in Revelation 3. What do you meet when you approach the temple? Pillars. The pillars. You've got all this surface area and you've got all these believers surrounding the throne of God as pillars. Why does he say, come see the bride? You're showing the city. It's because that's where the bride... Remember, we've got the name of the bride, or the name of the city, excuse me. We've got the name of the city on us in addition to the name of the Father and the Son. Because when you approach the city, you see the city with all these things, but this is where the bride is. And the bride isn't... You know, I think we look at this and you think, well, you see a few people up there at the top. We're talking about a lot of believers. We're talking about at the present time, 2,000 years of believers in Jesus Christ that are all over the surface of this. You come and you see this city, what are you seeing? What, what ends up being the thing that you're going to see? Because he already introduced it. People. It's people. Which is very interesting because for the most part, when we think of a city today, we think of the buildings and the roads. <laughs> but in this case, he does. He says there's a foundation, and there's a wall and gates. Well, what's the whole purpose of a wall and gates? Has to do with people being on the city, because that's what it's going to be about. It's going to be about people. That's the big thing that goes down with this, and I think it's very important for us to be able to appreciate and understand that. 
turn back to Revelation chapter 2, one of the other promises that I think is very important. Revelation chapter 2. And this is one of the promises it's, uh, that he's in. He says, he who has an ear, this is 2.11, I'm sorry, I didn't say 2.11, Revelation 2.11. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes, that's a believer, shall not be hurt. doesn't just say by the second death, but anything that comes out of the second death. Yeah, if you're a believer, you're not affected by the second death in terms of you don't, you don't undergo it. But this is a promise that nothing that comes out, how would something come out of the second death? How would that hurt you? You know one of the things that's going to happen at the end of all these things? We, we, we haven't laid a case out for all this. But one of the things that happens before some of this is all, before we move fully into eternity, is that we stand with Jesus Christ at his great white throne. He's judging. And you know who comes up to be judged before him? All the dead, great and small. Dead being all those people who are unbelievers. Every last one of us is going to see people down there in that crowd that have been dear to us. People that during this life might have been your mom, your dad, your sister, your brother, your child, your best friend. And they have not believed in Jesus Christ. And I still remember, and I've told you this story before, but I still remember a man that came to our church, put his big chart up across the front of the auditorium. And we had a church much bigger than this when I was growing up as a kid. We, didn't, we, had, we had a group of people that was about the same size, but the church was really big. And we had this, he had this big chart up across the front, and he's talking on these things. And I said, kid, I'm fascinated by it. But when he got to the great white throne, he says, someday... You're going to have people that are going to be up there and they're going to be looking up at you and they're going to say, you didn't share the gospel with me and I'm going to hell because of you. And he says, and we're going to cry. And he's trying to make us all feel guilty about this. But you know what this is saying? Nothing comes out of that second death that's going to hurt you. Those people that are going to come before you, and I have people like that in my life. I don't know how you react to this, but when I hear the death of certain people, this doesn't happen with everybody, but when there are people that die, one of the things that runs through my mind right off the bat is, you know what they're experiencing right now as an unbeliever? When Ed Cochran passed away this, this last week, I was like, Peg and I were both like, well, hey, guess what he's getting to listen to right now? He's getting to hear these. He's getting to hear these good things. But sometimes there's those people that when they pass away, they're going, ah, oh, what a shock. What a shock that was for that person that in this life was rejecting Jesus Christ. I still remember, well, anyway, I don't need to go any further than that, but the, the, you get the point. But for you in that state, down, right down here, that sometimes is hard for us. Right? That's hard for us. There was an individual that I knew that I talked with, and I still remember when that individual passed. That was one of the first things I got a call from the school that told me that this person had died. They wanted me to come in and step in and help out. Up there, this is quite a few years back. And I was just like, man, it, seriously, it was, there was a punch in the gut. I mean, I felt sick to my stomach when I was thinking about what that individual was experiencing at that moment because I knew that that person held to a completely different view of who Jesus Christ is. And it, that, it just, it hurt. That will not hurt out there in the future. 
In fact, I think even during this life, you have the potential to actually have your perspective adjusted that it doesn't have to hurt you as much now either. It's one of the things my grandmother said that once she became saved, one of the things that bothered her for quite some time was that she knew her father was not a believer in Jesus Christ and he had died before she became saved. And that was hard for her. And she said, but there was one day that God just gave her peace about it and it was done. And she didn't worry about it anymore. So that's, a, I think that's an important, but that's an important promise. Do you want to go out? Do you want to spend eternity out there thinking about people that are dear to you, people that you love that are, that are suffering in that way? No, you're not going to, you're, you're going to have a completely different perspective on that. There'll probably be other elements involved in that that I don't even understand. Now, last thing I want to look at then is kind of a, all of this is, is, Promises, but their promises, promises are always supposed to produce a hope. And a hope normally should cause you to function in a different way, shouldn't it? Because you should then believe that promise and faith, then you act on faith as a believer. Turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. And again, this is kind of like some of the things I've been saying over the last few weeks. I don't think for any of you, that this is anything new. We've been over this before. You've probably been over this in other Bible studies, either that you've done yourself or that you've listened to other people teach. But it's good to be reminded of these things. And he says in 2 Peter chapter 3, and this is in the context of people that are mocking the Lord's coming. Oh, where's his coming? Things Nothing ever changes. Look at that. Where, where's his coming? You know, and they're mocking this. But he says, no, the Lord is coming back. And he's not slow. He's on time. He knows exactly what date he's marked on his calendar for all of these things to go into play. He's not waiting. He doesn't have to wait for anything to, I'm waiting for those people to get the, if we get this many people in line, we can make it up. No, he's, it's not the way God operates. So notice what he says here. <clears throat> Verse nine, the Lord is not slow concerning his promise as some count slowness, but he is patient or long suffering toward you or some of your Bibles have toward us not determining, it's not the word wish, it's the word bulimai, not determining that any will perish, all will come to repentance. In other words, there will not be a single believer in Jesus Christ that's going to go out of here going, no, this is not the way it is. <laughs> it's not the, they will all have a change of mind. Then he goes on, verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with an intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. And then notice what he says here. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? In other words, how would you live differently if you looked around at everything you do everything you've invested your life in and say, it's all going to burn. You'd say, well, I'm not going to do anything the rest of my life. I'm going to put on a white robe and go wait up on top of a hill. And you would be wrong because that is not the way you ought to. He says you ought to live in holy conduct and godliness and that conduct is your daily life. It means that even though you still have those things to do, don't go down and set fire to the store, Josh and Ben, when this is over. God still wants you to do that. But you know what? As you go about doing that on a daily basis, you always do it with a little bit of detachment going, I'll leave it all behind 
in the blink of an eye, I won't care. And therefore, should I let my life be so consumed by this now that I can't function to do the other things God wants me to do? We can become so wrapped up in this world and its stuff and its things. And, 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 and every one of us has something or some things like that that will consume us. Every one of us does. There's not a one of us that's free of that kind of an issue. So we always need to be challenging ourselves. It's all going to burn. And therefore, how should that affect the way I'm living right now? No, don't go up on a hill and wait for the Lord to come back. He wants you to go about doing your things down here. But you're going to do it now with, with he says, this holy conduct in this godliness, a life that actually honors God daily in the things that you're doing. Then he goes on and he adds this, this next detail, which is not separate. This is continuation. We have a verse division here, but this is further part of how we are to be conducting ourselves. Eagerly awaiting and being diligent for the presence of the day of God, in which, or on account of which, excuse me, the heavens being burned up will be dissolved and the elements burning will melt, because we are, here it is, eagerly expecting new heavens and a new earth, according to his promise, in which righteousness will dwell. And that word dwell there is not just oikeo, it's kat oikeo. Righteousness is going to settle down and be at home. This world down here, you can see righteousness here and there every once in a while. The righteousness in this present world never going to be at home. This is a fallen world dominated by fallen people, all under God's control ultimately, but he's still basically letting this world do its thing its way. And righteousness is never, if you're, if you're as a Christian are out there looking to see righteousness in the world, you're going to be so disappointed. You're going to lose sleep at night. <laughs> you're going to be wringing those hands either mentally or you know, literally over those you're looking forward to something beyond all this saying, you know, there's better things to come. I go about doing what I'm supposed to do. I take the opportunities God gives me as he presents them, and I address these things here and there. But I'm looking forward to the fact there are some things so much better, a whole new creation. And I'm actually going to get to see righteousness settle down at home. That's something we have never witnessed. And that's something that we ought to, Boy, we ought to be hungry for that. We ought to be eager for that. Because of some of the stuff with the baby and everything coming on here, we're not doing traditional Thanksgiving because we're going to wait and do Thanksgiving after the baby's born when we can all kind of get together. Because, you know, you know, mama that's really pregnant doesn't really is not going to be able to enjoy Thanksgiving dinner nearly as much as she can when she can eat more. So we're going to wait. Now why do I say that? Because that's kind of disappointing. Because Thanksgiving is like that's that's the whole sure holiday. That we like that better than Christmas <laughs> at our house. Seriously, that's kind of the way we are. And I get eager because I love Thanksgiving food. I love eating all that. And so I'm looking forward to something out there that I'm going to have to put that off a little bit. Bad illustration really pales in comparison to the whole issue of righteousness now versus righteousness in that new universe. But we understand 
we're putting off the fact that we're never going to really get it here, the righteousness that we want to see, but we're going to see it out there in a new creation. Where we're going to be on that new Jerusalem with God, we're going to be his sons, demonstrated clearly to be his sons in our conduct all the time, with a keen appreciation for these things that God has done and is doing, and living in a time in which there is no grief or pain or death. All that stuff is gone, and we're going to be able to see and just, boy, <laughs> is that a hard thing sometimes to wrap your mind around? I mean, we can say all that, but it's just all of it's so foreign to the situation in which we live. But it's something that ought to make us hungry for that. Do you live every day with just a, with at least some distancing from everything in the world because you realize it's all coming to an end? And do you live every day with the anticipation that today's the day the Lord could come back for me and I actually would be a son all the time? And do you look forward to the day that you're going to come back with Christ when he comes to conquer this world and you're going to be demonstrated to the world as one of his sons, as his bride, with the name of God and the name of the city and the name of the son. And then even looking beyond that to the ultimate, to the ultimate situation in the new creation where we're actually going to witness righteousness settled on hope. Do you live with those anticipations? Do you let those things run through your mind on a daily basis? When you sit down in the morning, like Tim does, eat his breakfast and pull up the news and go, oh, oh. <laughs> wait a second. <laughs> this is not the way it's always going to be. It's going to change. I've got better things. So I could go out of there today going, oh, man. Or I could go out of here going, this isn't the end. God told me what the end is. We looked at some of the end of it in here. This is what the end is going to be. This is a temporary thing i got to walk around in. This is a temporary thing that I have to deal with and glorify God in my daily conduct. Different than the people in the world. People in the world, they're all going, one way or another. We don't have to be like that. We actually can be setting our minds on better things out there in the future. That's, a, that's an encouragement. That's an encouragement. I'm thankful for a wife that encourages me that because I'm like, Peg, listen to this. And I read her something. And Peg goes, part of the world system, part of the world system. It's all going to come to an end. Thank you, hon. Appreciate that. And I take that seriously. I appreciate that she has to remind me of that. When I don't remind her, I actually am going, you, you, you want to listen to this? See? So I do it. Don't, I don't stand up here and say, I never struggle with that. I struggle with it just like every one of us does. But there are times that I'm very thankful that God does remind me of what the future is. And man, I tell you, what a difference of attitude. What a different way of approaching life when I remember that he's getting he has so much better things for us in the future. Father, we're thankful for the time together. And we're thankful for your the promises that you've made us of our future, this grand future that just... Again, it's a hard thing for us to wrap our minds around because it is so foreign to the, to the things that we witness in this present world, this present world that is dominated by corruption, as Paul says. But we can look forward to better things. We can set our mind out there to a hope of what we'll be able to witness and participate in when your son returns for us and we will begin to step into all of those events. 
We ask that these truths would be things that you would use, that we would use to encourage ourselves and others uh, in whatever events you have planned for us, not only today, but in the days, weeks, and potentially, if it's your plan for us to be here longer, even the years that are ahead. And we thank you for all of this then. Amen.